Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox the new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and the question we're pursuing in this programme is, what does it mean when we say that an animal performs? I am still um, really committed to the idea of asking impertinent questions, um, and I thought that most of these essays did that. One of the impertinent questions that we ask is, do animals actually act, right? My guests are Karen Raber whose voice you just heard, Professor of English at the University of Mississippi, and Monica Matfeld, Assistant Professor of English Literature and History at the University of Northern British Columbia. Together, they're the editors of a fascinating recent collection of essays entitled Performing Animals, History, Agency, Theatre. Karen and Monica write in their introduction to the book. These essays weave back and forth between historical periods, and between the small and large non-human creatures who inhabited these periods. They interrogate assumptions not merely about what might distinguish animals from humans, or their respective performance abilities, but about what we think is going on when we see animals perform. They also mention that recent work in the sciences and the humanities has provided new tools to investigate, from all angles, questions of animal performance pre-20th century, the focus of their collection. From horse dramas on the 19th century stage in London, to animals theatricalised on the early modern table, to the microscopic world of the flea circus. Their volume deploys the recent animal turn in theory and scholarship to open up new perspectives, so I began by asking them what was meant by the animal turn. First, here's Karen Raber. I think that um, by and large, the animal turn was a natural fallout of the kinds of theoretical approaches of the 80s and 90s, which were increasingly concerned with, first, marginalized groups, and secondly, the construction of subjectivity, human subjectivity. That began to be influenced by the rise of eco-critical concerns, um, the advent of a sort of practice that included attention to the environment and all of the non-human actors and participants in it. And when you brought those things together, what you had was the recipe for looking to non-human life as a way of qualifying the anthropocentrism of traditional criticism, traditional scholarship, and looking for new ways to think about the category of the human that didn't necessarily necessarily celebrate it or render it somehow um, an actual category because there are ways in which the human is a kind of empty vessel. Monica, does that sound about right to you? 
It absolutely does. They are ways of thinking beyond the human as this fully set, completely understandable entity divorced from, you know, the natural world or the bacteria around us or the, the companion animals that we share our homes with. Uh, the animal turn animal studies or critical animal studies coming out of the animal turn are also looking towards thinking with and beyond the human to think of the human as almost post-human, as never really in existence throughout history, but always in existence with the non-human life around him. And as you say, also in the introduction, the critical insights that you and your contributors are able to bring to bear are enabled by things which are going on in the humanities and in the sciences. They're both exciting areas that are, that are mutually fueling each other. Right. So this is Karen again. I'm, I'm always fascinated by the speed at which science is undoing the assumptions about an anthropocentrism that's fundamental to all of its practices. So I teach animals in literature uh, to undergraduates, and soon I'll do that for graduate students as well. But I try to bring in on a daily basis some version of a new study on, you know, um, horses recognize people's emotions or whales are altruistic in their defense of others in the ocean from sharks or uh, elephants suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And you can go on and on and on like this. And in almost every discipline of the sciences, there seems to be this reversal where once it was considered anathema to take into account the idea that animals might think like us have emotions like us, function like us, because that would have insulted that anthropocentric bias, it's now becoming daily practice to reconsider that and to think about the ways in which our brains are structured similarly and so on. So it seems to me that the sciences have actually been important drivers of this post-humanist emphasis on the deconstruction of the human that Monica mentioned. I mean, it certainly seems like every single day, more or less, brings some new discovery about the cognitive or affective life of animals. And it's always, it's always in the direction of there being more to it than, than previous um, generations have given them credit for. Let's go on to the subject of your collection, which is performing animals. So tell me a little bit about the genesis of that and how you circumscribed the subject. You know, it just occurred to us that there was a rich uh, literature on animals in film, for instance, or animals on television, and that that had been a, a really fruitful place for theorists and animal studies, critical animal studies scholars, but that there had been very little done in terms of the prehistory of that, as if somehow it was irrelevant to think about animals in performance at any time before the 20th century. So... I was interested in that, and I was also interested in the way in which the very term performance had become adaptive in theoretical terms. That is, performance no longer simply referred only to something like getting on a stage and playing a part, but that it had become tied up in the idea of how, how objects, how things, how creatures come into being. And it seemed to me there was room for a, a collection of essays that crossed over that boundary that kept talking on both levels, on both the, the level of actual animals actually potentially performing, but also the way in which 
performances like theatrical performances constituted the concept of the animal. So in our book, I think um, both of the flea, the flea papers and the, um, the, the flea chapters, uh, that's Todd Borlick and Jessica Wolf and Pia Cuneo's analysis of early art, along with mine and Monica's chapters, do that crossover in particular. I think for all of us, that was, um, uh, you know, a source of interest. I wanted to just look in turn at each of your own essays in the collection, just to go into some of the the issues that we've we've already perhaps touched on a little bit in in more detail. And Karen, I wonder if we can start with yours because it it comes earlier in the collection, also chronologically it comes earlier in the period that it considers. And you start it with a very shocking description, and I wondered if you could say a little bit about what is described in that. Renaissance text and why you chose it. Sure. The opening is John Wecker's um, Secrets of Nature. It's a volume that's fairly typical for the Renaissance of uh, collected quote unquote secrets. And they cross over in all kinds of directions. Um, They can be recipes. uh, They can also um, talk about astrological practices and supernatural things. But um, this is the recipe for how to cook a goose so that it arrives at the table alive. Here's an extract. The cook should baste the goosey's head and heart so that her inward parts will roast before she dies. When you see her giddy with running and begin to stumble, her heart wants moisture. She is roasted, take her up, and set her on the table to your guests, and as you cut her up, she will cry continually that she will almost be all eaten before she be dead. For me, what was so fascinating about it was whether or not it's a real recipe, it does say something about human beings' relationship to the food that they eat. And that relationship is fundamentally theatrical and requires that the animal perform a certain part. So I wanted to follow up on that. I'm working on a book-length study of the way in which Early moderns make meat into what we think of it as today, the central aspect of a meal, a distinct category Um, before the 17th century, actually before the latter part of the 16th century, the word meat meant any kind of food at all. But by the middle and end of the 17th century, it means exclusively dead animal flesh cooked for, you know, human consumption. And it seemed to me that that was a moment that invited us to think about all of the theatrics, not only of the banquet table, but of recipes themselves, of the way in which meat is generated, um, often through these incredibly tortuous and uncomfortable processes, and then what the expectations were for that object as it arrived at the table, and the anxieties that surrounded it because of its odd and um, produced nature. And you say in your essay, it's probable that Wecker's recipe, in inverted commas, was more more of a fantasy than, than something that people would actually seek to accomplish. Nonetheless, you see it as kind of paradigmatic of quite an important relationship. Oh, sure. Our fantasies say so much more than anything we actually do. And it's not actually that far away from other practices that were everyday practices. For example, eels were frequently eaten alive. 
it's not unheard of even nowadays for people to really celebrate the encounter with raw food, sometimes even living food, uh, as something special and, you know, important as part of human experience. But at any rate, yes, that fantasy seemed to be crucially speaking about desires and, as I said, also about anxieties about what your food was on the early modern table. So say, say a little bit more then about where those anxieties sprang from. Uh, yeah, so I, I think as I point out in the, the essay for the book, one of the major problems and the most obvious anxiety had to do with the fact that by the time most food arrived at the table for early moderns to consume, especially in the 17th century when recipes were much more emphatic about things like mincing and um, fricasseeing and you know cooking until things became gelatinous and unrecognizable, one of the problems with that was that there was a fairly rigid system by which diet influenced human behavior, human nature. So in the humoral system, what you ate was absolutely crucial to keep track of because it could upset the balance of humors in your own body. It could bring on sickness or disease. It could transform you attitudinally. You could become intemperate. And it could even kill you in some extreme instances. The problem with that, of course, is by most recipes for early modern meat, you wouldn't have any idea what it was that you were putting in your mouth uh, beyond what maybe the chef told you. And there actually are a couple of places in early modern literature where this is a joke in some of the plays and the the fictional texts of the period that's kind of alluded to as as a kind of funny comment. But it seemed to me that the practices that early moderns used to reproduce their meat particularly things like dressing it up as itself after you have dismembered it and chopped it into little bits and cooked it until it has no consistency anymore. Then you stick it back together, you make it look like a pheasant or a duck or a goose, and you stick the feathers back on so all of the um, diners know exactly what they're eating. That that actually was articulating something like an anxiety about the relationship between food and ourselves. Because what food is, what food is for us, as well as for early moderns, is something that we literally incorporate. It literally becomes part of our bodies. For early moderns, that could be a really fraught issue. Which food are you eating? You can think of all of the dietary proscriptions and discomforts. For example, early moderns were never entirely comfortable with the idea of eating pork, largely because they knew that pigs ate things that they themselves would not consume. And then also, I thought that it connected to the way that the goose was functioning in that the goose at least comes to the table as itself or as herself, as the excerpt has it, right? So she announces the fact that she is a goose and she's ready to be consumed by all of the diners who are assembled there. That's very unusual fantasy, right? So that was part of it. I think you, you're quoting another scholar who refers to meat as a vagabond category and I thought that was that was interesting because vagabondage denotes anxiety because it's difficult to pin it down it's difficult to say what something is or when it goes from one category to another right <laughs> right that's that's Jane Bennett yeah I love that quote that was an amazing quote it's from her book Vibrant Matter I think she's talking about precisely this kind of uncertainty even if you know what the meat is you you know you're looking at your steak and you know that it's a steak 
it is still something that is always in it's fugitive, right? It was a living animal. It became an uncooked cut of meat through all kinds of interventions. It then becomes cooked through interventions. Then you consume it, but it doesn't stay put. It sort of dis disintegrates into things that have tremendous influence. And she actually points out things like the hormones in beef can actually change people's hormonal constitution. And it, it sounds exactly like the humoral problem of the early modern period, that you're putting things into your body that will transform you, but you can't absolutely control them. Uh, we certainly still have a fascination with that issue of control. We'd like to stop the vagabondage of meat, I think. You can see all of that in the attempts to, you know, control farm-to-table sourcing at restaurants or determine where it is that your meat comes from by going to a local provider, or in some instances, you know, using your own chickens to produce eggs and breeding your own pigs and whatnot. I'm in Mississippi, so people really do that around here. Mm. <laughs> so from the, from the early modern kitchen um, to 19th century Covent Garden in London, and Monica, you write in your essay about a city in the grip of hippomania. Can, so can you tell me a bit about the background to that? Because after all, London was a city where horses were not rare commodities. So why did the city in the early 19th century suddenly go horse mad? Yeah, um, my chapter in the book, it focuses on a very specific moment in time. And that is when Covent Garden, one of the legitimate theatres, along with Drury Lane, start incorporating what has been traditionally viewed as an illegitimate sort of lowbrow entertainment into their theater repertoires. The date for this is 1811. And the chapter focuses on one of the early, early plays, and that is um, Matthew Lewis's Timur the Tartar. Smash hit, apparently it made Covent Garden a record season in, in sales, and it sort of set the stage, as it were, for future equestrian spectacles to the point where the 19th century or in the 19th century hippodrama or the equestrian spectacle is the dominant genre of theater in London. As to why that develops, I think it has something to do with a couple of factors. The equestrian drama is an older form of theatrical spectacle and it comes out of the 18th century circuses. So specifically thinking about Astley's Amphitheatre and the Royal Circus specifically. And in these sort of entertainment spectacles, the horses were the stars of the show. So in the early, early forms, they would do things like fire a pistol or take off their own saddles or sit at a table with a clown and have tea. So it's learned animal acts in, in the sort of rich tradition of trick animals performing at, you know, the various fairgrounds and traveling fairs around the nation. So that's the early form. Eventually, as the 18th century progresses, it becomes ever more complex. These circuses are in constant competition with one another, and the competition is fierce. So you have the managers of the theaters revamping the theater programs upwards of, you know, once a week, and the shows go on for upwards of five hours a night. So a lot of effort goes into innovation to keep ahead of the competition. 
as that's happening, as the innovation is developing, the acts get ever more complex and they are relying on spectacle and on um, thrilling the audiences. And the audiences lap it up. They throng and they flock to the, the circuses in droves. The legitimate theaters, however, the ones that put on traditional plays such as, you know, Shakespeare and the spoken word dramas are being left behind. They are having falling attendance numbers. They are not drawing in the audiences like they wanted to. And eventually they kind of give in. Like, oh, that's, the, that's what audiences want to see. Even though it's lowbrow entertainment, even though it is frowned upon by theater critics as sort of crass, they do invite the hippodramas into their theaters and it works. Audiences love it. And do they try to give it a, a more literary and a more upmarket spin, or do they, do they just literally give in? <laughs> well, kind of both. Some of the the uh, farces that come out of the genre are very much within the circus tradition. There are clowning, there is sort of learned animal acts. It's, it's very circus-like. Timur the Tartar was, was a commission. Matthew Lewis, of course, is well-known author at this time. He has done other uh, dramatic scripts. He is a published novelist, famous for The Monk, and it is semi-highbrow entertainment. It's still relying on spectacle, however, to, to keep audiences' attention. Throughout the 19th century, the hippodrama starts incorporating the traditional scripts that were the bread and butter of Covent Garden and Drury Lane. So, for example, you have Macbeth staged on horseback <laughs> or Othello staged on horseback. So it's a bit of a mix of the highbrow and the lowbrow. Uh, and audiences loved it. Many critics did not. And do we know what the contemporary audiences made specifically of the horses i mean how were they responding to the horses was it purely spectacle or were there were there sort of more subtle deeper things going on too the horses are complex and for many they were quite worrying uh, as you said london and many urban centers in the uk at this time had many horses in the streets they're pulling the calves they're they're working horses Horses are everywhere at this time, but the horses on the street were not the horses that were viewed on stage, or at least the audience didn't interpret them the same way. The horses on stage performed acts that were highly trained and were, in some cases, very worryingly human. For example, um, in Timur the Tartar, there is a bit of a subplot. One of the scenes of this subplot takes place on a jousting field. And you have, you know, the protagonist and the antagonist, they're, they're having a joust. It's all over the, the hand of the fair maiden. Very, you know, very romantic plot. And eventually the hero is unhorsed and the, the evil villain is set to attack him. What the hero's horse does, and this is in uh, Lewis's stage directions, is the horse is supposed to then grab the sword of the fallen hero and bring it to him. So a direct 
involvement within this story that speaks to the horse understanding what's going on, is able to think into the future in a quite rational way, and then take steps to aid his master in his endeavors. That sort of jousting scene eventually ends with the hero's horse again intervening in the fight, but with the evil villain stabbing him and killing him, you know, in, in quotes, on stage. So with that, the horse has to go through a rather complex and lavish death scene, <laughs> collapsing onto the stage and laying there seemingly dead. Audiences and critics wrote about the apparent naturalness, the unaffected acting of the horses, especially the one that had to lay there dead. They spoke about the horse not moving a muscle. And it was very, very appreciated and idealized language that they talked about this horse. It's not the horse that they would have seen on the street, that's for sure. No, from the very large to the very small. From the drama of heroic horses on the stage to the microcosmos of fleas. Here's Karen on some of the other contributions in their collection. I love the fact that we got two essays on fleas in there. Um, so, <laughs> and that they're diametrically opposite. That was uh, unplanned but fortuitous. So um, I think there are a couple of things to frame those two pieces that are worth thinking about that what Todd Borlick's piece does is take up the issue of how insects might have been understood before the um, Cartesian machine took over the imagination of insect life, right? So he's talking about the ways in which the fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dream can be seen as representations of insects in their kind of complexity and interaction with human life and so on as representatives of the supernatural, a world that humans wonder at but um, can't necessarily participate in on a daily basis. So the, the play makes that available. Whereas Jessica is focused on the way in which um, the examination of insects anticipates and then kind of bears fruit for that mechanistic version of what animals are. So by the time Descartes comes along and says, you know, animals are nothing but um, automata, they're just little machines, there's a rich context for that. And it has to do with the way in which the natural histories look at these minute creatures and imagine what they are. Monica, what, do you, what would you add to that? I think you nailed it. I... What I found really interesting about these two chapters was the sheer otherness of the insect world in in opposition to, you know, mammals or the the readily understood sort of bigger um, species. Right. Uh, Jessica Wolf talks about the the microscopes and how all of a sudden for the first time things like the exoskeleton or the the flea itself and its anatomy and watching these small beings pull these immense weights becomes sort of visible for the first time and how natural historians, natural philosophers are just unequipped to understand them, that their knowledge just is struggling, I think, a little bit to, to sort of categorize and figure out what is going on. And even if it's not explicitly stated, 
an anthropocentric worldview is being challenged implicitly, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's something which keeps coming up again and again throughout the collection. I mean, you mentioned the Cartesian model, Karen, and one of the chapters which really sort of looks at some of the implications of that is a chapter on the anatomy theatre and the performance there of, of vivisections. Can you just say a little bit about the trajectory there, which does go from a, a viewpoint where animal pain is not even, even considered to, to something which is, is perhaps more nuanced and more aware? Yeah, actually, I thought that the way that Sarah um, Parker handled that was fascinating because what she what she focuses on is the way in which individual vivisectionists actually try to repress the response of the audience. You know, there there's a period during which, first of all, the anatomy theater is a genuine theater around the 16th into the 17th centuries, and people attend it as a kind of spectacle. That continues with uh, the performances of the Royal Society. Uh, many, many vivisections were performed for public audiences and outside of what we would consider the scientific venue of the Royal Society itself. She talks about Joseph Wright's um, painting of a household demonstration of the the air jar, you know, where an animal is trapped in the jar. And air pump. What Monica said here, but the mic didn't pick up is the title of Joseph Wright of Derby's painting of 1768, an experiment on a bird in the air pump. There you go. Thank you. Yep. can never remember the title of that painting. <laughs> anyway, and, but, she, but she talks about the way in which others of the primary vivisectionists, people like Harvey, become increasingly uncomfortable, not, not necessarily with the need to perform vivisection to understand the body, etc., but rather with the complex of responses in an audience to that moment. I think the argument is implicitly that there's no way to control how those animals that are being operated on speak to an audience. And that's what Wright's, Wright's painting in part demonstrates that. What he's trying to do, it looks like, is authorize the more scientific and empirical viewpoint because most of the figures in the painting are responding with curiosity looking rationally at the demonstration and it's generally the women and children who are horrified and fainting away and throwing their hands up before their eyes and stuff like that and yet and yet that's not necessarily something that you could reliably structure in audience responses so there was an affective connection to those animals that was i think you know, hard to control and hard to explain and hard to make, made it hard for vivisectionists to justify all of the excesses of vivisection, which Descartes authorized. Descartes basically said, you can do anything you want to animals because they don't have a rational soul, because they don't act out of reason, because they don't, you know, they're just machines. It was very difficult to act on that over a period of time without without questioning it and seeing yeah. your audiences question it. And that chapter, yeah, as you say, it, it, it very subtly brings out that growing anxiety, I think. Well, maybe I could ask you both in conclusion that the book, as I think listeners will have gathered, is full of fascinating and really stimulating ideas that go in all sorts of directions. I just wanted to ask you, um, from your own personal viewpoints, 
Did any particular themes or ideas or new directions come from working on this book that that you are going to be keen to pursue or indeed see others pursue? But what what what, what has been what have been among the sort of stimulating surprises? A couple of things emerged for me out of this collection. One is one of which is the the need for further research into the hippodrama itself. Three of the chapters engage with that genre specifically. So mine, Carrie Weil and Kim Mara's. That sort of emerged as a avenue for further investigation that is kind of required in order for us to really start to understand 18th century understandings of human animal relationships and theater and performance. So that's one avenue. Um, Another avenue not so overtly stated for me is the question of, if you will, insider knowledge and outsider knowledge. So it, it has to do a little bit with what Karen was talking about in audience reception versus scientific investigation. There are two very different knowledge bases at work there. There are two very different sort of lived experiences with animals at work. And I think that that investigation into how personal experience really pushes against, in many cases, I think, scientific established orthodoxy. And it for this time period that this um, book covers, that question seems to me as always there but never really engaged with. So for me that's where I would like a bit of the research to go in the future. Yeah, I I am still um, really committed to the idea of asking impertinent questions Um, and I thought that most of these essays did that. One of the impertinent questions that we ask is do animals actually act, right? Mm -hmm. And it's been such such an ingrained position that you're not allowed to anthropomorphize, you can't project your own human capacities onto non-human beings. And I would love to continue to overset that sort of belief structure. I think that anthropomorphism can also be a humbling experience, that you understand that there are things that you have always assumed were limited to the human that in fact are that animals and non you know mammals could be capable of i mean lately people are starting to talk about things like you know trees sending messages to each other bacteria speaking to one another and communicating in your body so that they know exactly when to attack you that kind of thing i find those kinds of positions a little bit iconoclastic positions endlessly attractive. I really do love impertinent questions. I mean, for me, you know, the impertinent question that started mine was, so why is this description of the goose so offensive after all? What is it that we're reacting to? I like to keep asking silly questions in my my class. You know, one of my favorites is, so what's wrong with cannibalism anyway, right? What, why do we have these biases? We never examine them. And particularly when it comes to animal agency, I think those biases have a long way to go before they're not, not so ingrained. So for me, the, the essays in the book do a wonderful job of poking at those pieties about how animals can't really act, 
And there are, sh- there are so many more of those pieties, like animals don't have language, animals can't communicate, animals can't have abstract thought, they don't know death. You know, you can go on with a list a mile long. We've got a lot of work to do on those. <laughs> so that's my, that's what I thought the book was great for provoking, and it'll keep provoking. I was talking to Karen Raber and Monica Matfeld about Performing Animals, which is available now in hardback from Pennsylvania State University Press. You can find out more about it on their website. Do also visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.